American churches are facing steady declines in attendance and giving, and many church leaders are quick to blame forces outside the church for why so many people are leaving their church. But what if judgmental Christians are to blame? And what comes next after the unraveling of the American church? We'll talk about that in this episode of the More Than a Pastor show. Let's get started. Hello, my friend. Welcome to the More Than a Pastor show. I'm Rich Avery, your host. This is where we help you take your skills, experience, and ministry know-how and leverage them into sustainable income outside the church through a business or side hustle that's right for you so you can serve God and provide for your family no matter what. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really glad you're here. It's always a blessing to have you tune in and join me for this uh, moment together. But if you're new to the show, you can learn more about me, get the show notes for today's episode, and download some free resources to help you grow your income and build financial security over at my website at morethanapastor.com slash 44 for episode 44. Hey, are you old enough to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall? I remember it well. It was November 9th, 1989, and I was a sophomore in college. For 30 years, the Berlin Wall had been a symbol of the Cold War, and it was constructed of barbed wire and concrete by the uh, communist East German government starting in 1961, and their goal was to divide the city of Berlin and separate communist East Germany from democratic West Germany. And the wall quickly became a physical representation of the political and ideological iron curtain that the Soviet Union was erecting to keep the entire Eastern European communist bloc separated from the influence of American capitalism and Western democracy. Did you know that over the years, over a hundred or more than a hundred thousand East Germans tried to escape over the walls that separated them from freedom in the West? And more than 600 were shot or killed or died in some other way in their attempt at freedom. But on Thursday, November 9th, 1989, a blunder made by an East German official speaking at a press conference led to the immediate opening of the Berlin Wall and East Germany's border with the West, and it led to the eventual collapse of the entire East German communist regime. This official, his name was Gunter Schabowski, and he was supposed to announce some changes that the East German government was making to uh, allow for more people to visit, to leave East Germany and visit West Germany, or even possibly to move out of East Germany. So Schabowski was supposed to announce that East Germany was easing travel restrictions. They were going to be making it easier for citizens to apply, to go to the West to visit, and they would create an application process so that you could actually apply to emigrate or move out of East Germany uh, at some point in the future. So Gunter Schabowski had one job to announce that they were beginning to ease some travel restrictions, but what he actually ended up saying at that press conference was that East Germany was going to open its border with the West and that East Berliners could begin to go through the border to West Berlin effective immediately. Well, 
Can you imagine the surprise of the other officials who were there at that press conference and the journalists from East and West who were there to cover the press conference? Could you imagine their surprise at these words? There was a lot of confusion and people didn't know what to make of it. And journalists were asking Shabowski clarifying questions. And, and But what he said was that they were opening the border effective immediately. Well, news began to spread pretty quickly. Uh, there was the evening news last ni- that night in East and West Germany, and that news spread around the world. And within just a few hours, tens of thousands of East Germans gathered at the Berlin Wall or at the other walls across East Germany, and they were demanding to have the gates be opened so that they could walk across to the other side. The border guards were totally caught off guard. Uh, for for decades, they had been taught to shoot to kill anyone that was approaching the border who did not have authorization. And now here there were tens of thousands of, of, of people crowding the border, crowding the gates, standing on the wall, demanding to be let through. Actually, it was people on both sides of the wall, standing on top of the wall, demanding that the wall, the doors, the gates be opened and that people could come through. Eventually, at 11.30 p.m., a military officer gave the order to open the gates and to allow people to enter West Berlin. Now, if you were like me and you were watching the coverage on TV that night, it was a remarkable sight to see. Again, tens of thousands of East Germans, or Germans from both sides, actually, were walking across the border, border that had been previously guarded for years, and people had lost their lives trying to escape to the West. And that night, some even brought hammers and began to chip away or chisel at the wall to try to dismantle it for good. I can't imagine what the East German officials were thinking that night. They were probably grasping for ideas of how to resolve this situation, how to be able to close the gates and get some order to this chaos that was created from this press conference. But within a few days, the genie was out of the bottle for good. Two million East German citizens had tasted freedom for the first time in nearly 30 years by walking through the border over to West Berlin in just the first couple of days that the gates were opened. All of a sudden, the physical, political, and ideological walls that divided people for decades had suddenly become irrelevant literally overnight. This singular moment led to the unraveling of the East German communist regime within just a few days of this. And Germany was reunified as a country. East and West came together a year later as a, a Western democracy. And this situation, this moment in time, paved the way for the disintegration of the Soviet Union and the entire Eastern communist bloc less than two years later. In the end, this autocratic institution of Eastern European communism that had oppressed its citizens for decades, that had held the world in constant fear of nuclear war, and that had attempted to seal itself off from perceived threats from Western freedom and democracy, this wasn't destroyed from outside enemies. It came unglued, at the seams due to self-inflicted wounds. It eventually collapsed under its own weight, 
no longer able to sustain itself or to maintain its authority over the people. I believe the traditional institutional church in America finds itself in pretty much the same place today. Always on guard to protect against attacks from the outside, from secularism, liberalism, progressivism, wokeism, some other kind of ism, the church today is coming apart at the seams. Also, I think, due to self-inflicted wounds, and is collapsing under its own weight, no longer able to sustain itself through tithes and offerings alone, or able to maintain any authority or influence it has in the culture. Not because of some feared enemy from the outside bent on destroying it. No, I think the church is unraveling from the inside out. Now, let me give a disclaimer before I go any further today. I'm not equating the church in America with communism. I'm not saying that the two are the same whatsoever. I'm just using the fall of the Berlin Wall as an example of what I think is happening with the church today. And I know the church in America is not a monolith. It's not some autocratic institution that controls the whole of society. It's an organism made up of thousands of churches and millions of believers. But there are some similarities, I think, with certain denominational structures that have been created in our country and in our world. And I'm not saying that this is the end of the church or Christianity, because I believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and I believe that he's still using the church to fulfill his redemptive purpose in the world. But I am suggesting that I think we're experiencing the end of what I call the traditional or institutional church in America, as we've known it over the last 75 years or so. And I'll tell you why I think that in just a moment. A few weeks ago, I read a story which said that American churches are now closing at record rates. The story was entitled, Losing Their Religion, Why U.S. Churches Are on the Decline, and it was published on Sunday, January 22nd. 2023 in uh, a website called theguardian.com. The author, Adam Gabbett, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, he shared three observations for the decline in the number of churches in America, which should really come as no surprise to those of us who are in church leadership. First, congregations are dwindling because younger people, younger generations are abandoning the church. They're abandoning Christianity. But he said that's interesting uh, because that's happening even while faith is dominating American politics today. And I'm going to have more to say on that in just a moment. But he says younger people are abandoning, abandoning the church, but faith is also somehow trying to dominate American politics. So that was his point number one. Second, he said the American population as a whole is becoming increasingly non-religious. And point number three is that thousands of churches are closing each year, but fewer new ones are opening to replace them. So last year, 4,500 Protestant churches closed and only 3,000 new ones opened. So that's a gap of 1,500 churches that no longer are existing today. And he gave uh, several reasons, uh, two in particular, why people are leaving the church. Now, if you or I asked young people or people in general why they're leaving the church, I think we'd get several different answers. And I've had those conversations. I'm sure you have too. 
And I've discussed some of these reasons, some of these things that are happening um, in my series earlier uh, on my podcast, a series on the cultural, social, political, and economic forces or trends that are facing that are shaping the future of the church in America today. If you want to check that out and give it a listen, start with uh, podcast episode 12. Uh, you can find it at morethanapastor.com slash 12. That episode is entitled, It's the End of the Church as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. So check that out if you want to begin that series and why I think um, the church is radically changing in America right now. But I think Adam Gabbett, the author of this article, he hits the nail on the head when he cited two specific reasons why he believes young people are leaving the church today. Reason number one, can you guess it? They find church members to be judgmental and hypocritical. The lack of acceptance, the selective moralizing, the holier-than-thou attitude, can't see the plank in my own eye because I'm focused on the speck in your eye. That was number one. Number two, they disagree with the church's stance on political and social issues, from LGBTQ to abortion, immigration, social justice, racial justice. Those are at the top of the younger generation's social concerns. And it seems like, again, to that point earlier about American politics being dominated by religion or specifically like conservative Christians these days. You may disagree. I'd love to get your feedback on this, but it seems like the more Christians try to push a Christian agenda or Christian values through political means and advocate for candidates who are promised to do so, it seems like the more we do that, the more the younger generations don't want anything to do with the church. Maybe there's something in there where they they don't believe uh, church and politics should mix like that. Now, we want to have people of faith in politics, using their their faith values in the decisions that they make, but but not to dominate politics, not to make it a Christian nation, if you will. It seems like younger generations are pushing away from that with increasing numbers. You might think I'm wrong. I'd love to get your feedback on that. But I think these two reasons, number one, church members are judgmental and hypocritical. Number two, they disagree with the church's stance on political and social issues. Seems like these are no big surprise, right? Well, I think it's an interesting time and place we find ourselves in today because so many people are leaving the church. They're leaving their church in particular and the church, the big C church, because they find it's not living out the radical love and acceptance that Jesus Christ modeled for the marginalized and the misfits in our society. And I've thought on this for some time, asking myself this question, why is it that the people who are supposed to be the most loving, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, are now viewed by many in our culture as being the least loving? And then it dawned on me one day, that I think one of the top reasons why Christians have become known for our lack of love and for being so judgmental could be this whole love the sinner, hate the sin idea that the church has espoused for, I don't know, over the last 30 years or so. I know it is something that I have definitely um, embraced at one point, especially when it comes to LGBTQ issues. But I think this issue, love the sinner, hate the sin, has become toxic for the church. Kind of like how Gunter Schabowski's press conference blunder 
led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the unraveling of communism in, in short order. I think the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, has caused an unforced error, if I could borrow a phrase from baseball, which has led to the unraveling of the church in America. I'll tell you why I think this is. It's because for me, I've noticed that when I see people as sinners and when I focus on hating their sin, I end up becoming self-righteous. I start looking for all the things that are wrong with them. Like, that's my job, right? No, God didn't tell me to go look for all the bad in people. And somehow these feelings, when I start to see the worst in people, it starts to, to nurture feelings of contempt for them, even condemnation, and eventually judgment. So I think we end up hating the sin more than we remember we're supposed to be loving the people. Have you seen this play out in your own life? I know I have more times than I care to admit. I don't know about you, but as I read the Gospels today, I haven't found any instance where Jesus calls his followers to love the sin, love the sinner, and hate the sin. But I do see where he warns us against, um, he warns us to pay attention to the plank that's in our own eye, completely distorting our vision before we worry about the speck in someone else's eye. Yeah, that speaks to me a lot. And where he calls us to love our neighbors and to even count our enemies as neighbors worthy of our love and acceptance. I think when we see each other as neighbors, the whole equation changes. I think that's what Jesus had in mind, because then we remember that we were once all outsiders, but now we belong. And when we're neighbors, we don't just look out for our own selves or our own needs, but we look out for our neighbors and, and their needs as well. We're, we realize that we're in this together. And I can't help but think that things would be different in the church and in our culture today if we stop seeing people of different political persuasions as enemies, if we stop seeing people of other ethnicities as outsiders, if we stop seeing LGBTQ people as sinners, and instead saw everyone as our neighbors. But until then, I think the mass exodus is going to continue. Many millennials and Gen Zers have grown up being taught to some extent the values of diversity and acceptance and the importance of creating a safe place for all people to belong. And they've learned this in, in their schools, in their workplaces, in the military, in universities. Even if these places don't always get it right, it's talked about, it's ingrained into their cultures. However, there's one place I think people would expect to have conversations about this, but often don't, and that's in the church. And through their own experience or the experiences of others or portrayals in the media, it seems like millennials and Gen Zers have come to believe that judgmentalism, the mistreatment of women, especially women in ministry, Racism, sexual misconduct scandals, and toxic culture are somehow baked into the American church, baked into American Christianity. Now, you and I, I think, both know that's an unfair characterization of the church as a whole and of um, many individual churches and Christians in particular. But it's been true often enough that this is what our culture now believes.
And I think we're in a season right now, unfortunately, where pretty much all churches and all pastors are seen as guilty by association. So what are people to do when they lose trust in the institution of the church, believing it no longer practices the radical love and acceptance of Christ that it, that it preaches? Well, I think people could express their doubts and seek honest answers to questions that they have, but then we just end up hitting them or beating them down with our official dogmatic answers. They could point out structures and methods that are no longer working and advocate for change, but we'd end up labeling them as progressives or liberals or deconstructionists or worse. And they could try to hold church leaders accountable for misconduct and abuses, but then they just find out that the system in some churches and denominations seems to have been designed to protect itself and protect those in authority. So I think they're at a point when there's nothing else to do but leave. And that's why so many churches today are experiencing significant losses in attendance and giving and are struggling to survive. And we as leaders can bemoan this fact that we're losing the younger generations. We can blame some outside enemy like secularism, liberalism, progressivism, wokeism, or some other kind of ism, or even blame the COVID-19 pandemic over the last three years. But the truth is, I think the enemy is us. We've allowed the name of Jesus to be used to divide and hurt people. We've taken his open invitation for all to come and belong. We've made it exclusive for those who look and act the way we think they should. And we've allowed toxic leaders to preach one thing and live something totally different. I could be wrong, but I think the mass exodus we're seeing in the church today is our culture's, and maybe God's, judgment on the church for our own judgmentalism and hypocrisy. The good news is that in Christ, there is life after death. And I believe that the death of old, broken, unsustainable church models will give rise to new, more healthy ones. But I have a hunch that the church of the 21st century will look more like the church of the first century than the 20th century. I say this because I think Gen Zers and millennials are natural-born creators, and they place high values on authenticity trust, inclusion, and community. So I believe that they will reimagine and recreate the church without all the labels, dogmas, institutions, and denominations that have divided us. What will this church look like in the future? Well, I think we could envision it as being simple church, focused on the Apostles' Creed and not on some exhaustive book of doctrine or discipline. I think the church of the future will meet in smaller-sized buildings or no building at all, because what the younger generations want is that most of their giving is given away to make a difference locally and globally and not to pay for overhead that's used a couple of hours a week. The church of the future, I think, will be led more by co-vocational pastors who, as creators themselves, will derive most of their income from their work in the marketplace and even through their own business or side hustle, then income they receive from the church. And that's why I think with all these changes that are happening in the church, now is the time for pastors to begin creating streams of income outside the church to supplement or even replace their current ministry income. And that's why I've launched More Than a Pastor, and that's why I've made it my mission to help pastors discover the best ways to leverage your ministry know-how into a business or side hustle that's right for you so you can serve God and provide for your family no matter what. 
So what do you think? Do you see the wisdom of creating income outside the church right now? Do you already have a side hustle that you could scale up if you needed to create more sustainable income for your family or replace your ministry income one day? If so, I'd love to know about it. And you could email me at rich at morethanapastor.com and let me know. But if you're not sure if starting a business is right for you, I have something that I think can help. I'd love to give you a free copy of um, my a guide I've written. It's called How to Know if Starting a Business is Right for You. And in it, you'll discover the 12 signs that you might be right. You might be ready to launch your own business. And you'll learn the three things that every pastor needs in order to be successful in business. You can get your free copy today at morethanapastor.com slash biz. That's morethanapastor.com slash B-I-Z. Well, that's it for today's show. Before we go, would you do me a favor and hit like, share, or subscribe if you haven't already done so? Also, what topics would you like me to cover on a future episode? Please let me know. Until next time, remember that you are more than a pastor. Saying yes to God's call doesn't mean you have to say yes to feeling stuck, broke, or unfulfilled in your life in ministry. Let's work together and help you create the life, impact, and income that you were made for.